Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So Norco just dropped the new iterations of their optic and sight bikes, and in what came as a surprise to a lot of folks, both of them have gone high pivot. And it's relatively common to see high pivot enduro and DH bikes these days, but somewhat less so for a 150 millimeter travel kind of all mountain bike like the site, and even more so with a 125 millimeter travel trail one like the optic. And so this week I'm sitting down with Norco engineer Colin Ryan to give a rundown on the new bikes, including the decision to go to a high pivot layout on both of them, the testing and validation that went into making that decision, the design of the bikes themselves, and a whole lot more. It's a very good deep dive into the design and thinking behind the new bikes, both of which we've got in for review. There's a first look on both up on the site, along with a flash review on the optic up currently. We'll have a flash review on the site coming very soon, and a full review of both down the line. And that kind of brings me nicely to our blister plus membership because in addition to that optic and soon to come site flash review there are a ton of new bikes coming out very very soon and you're going to want to see those flash reviews on them and to do that you need to be a blister plus member so check that out at the link in the show notes get yourself signed up and get all the good benefits that entails including access to our flash reviews and deep dives a whole bunch of discounts on really good gear the ability to send us an email and get a personalized gear recommendation or help with your suspension setup or whatever it is that you might need and injury insurance should you get yourself hurt out in the mountains or riding your bike to work or any number of various outdoor activities that are covered by it so it's a great program and a good deal so check out that link in the show notes and get yourself signed up and covered and with that Let's get right to my conversation with Colin Ryan. Well, Colin, great to sit down and chat and looking forward to doing a bit of a deep dive on the new optic and site here. How are you doing and where are you today? Hey, David. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, no, I'm doing pretty well. Um, I'm in kind of Maple Ridge, so just sort of east of Vancouver in the Fraser Valley. Um, and... Yeah, looking forward to running you through the new site and optic. Yeah, and well, we'll get into the bikes in just a second here, but to kick it off, just tell us a bit about what you do at Norco and what your role in the development of the two new bikes was. Sure, yeah. Um, so I've been with Norco for about four years now, um, kind of joined uh, in the role of a development engineer. So our uh, engineering groups kind of split into uh, production design and R&D. And so I work kind of on the R&D side of things. Um, and uh, that being said, the site and optic really were uh, kind of a project that involved everybody in the engineering team at one point or another. Um, so I was uh, kind of involved from the kinematic and geo kind of early stages of the bike uh, through meal testing and, and a lot of the ride testing. Um, but these bikes really are the representation of, you know, the work of the entire engineering team and everybody's touch them at some point to make them what they are. Good little rundown there. And well, I guess folks have probably seen the bikes by now, but you know, we've got a first look up on the site or will by the time you're hearing this conversation anyway, we should probably still just do a little bit of a um, kind of quick overview of the design of the bikes and what they are though. So can you sort of take us through them and what sort of broadly speaking you set out to do with the new ones? Yeah, sure. So the new site and optic are kind of our latest take on what we think, a, you know, an all mountain or a trail bike should be. Um, and obviously, you know, there's a pretty big departure on the suspension side of things from what we've done in the past, certainly on site and optic anyway. Um, and that was kind of a, I guess, a key decision point for us at the start of this project was, do we want to make kind of an incremental improvement on the current bikes? Or do we want to do something that's Kind of a ground up redesign um and the way we kind of answered that for ourselves was taking on this pretty big mule project um where we took some of the learning from the development of the range and from the shore and looked at what a site or an optic could be 
uh, with a layout that uh, provides a bit more rearward axle path. Um, and having kind of the range and the shore in our lineup as two bikes that achieve this in two different ways really gave us uh, kind of a good way to bookend what a rearward axle path trail all mountain bike may look like. Uh, and so we ended up going with a layout that's more similar to what's used on the shore. So it's a, a high pivot horse link layout. We're going to be calling it uh, VPS HP um, to go along with kind of the rebranding of our horse link layout as VPS. It's an acronym that you know, Norco has kind of used for years. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a high pivot horse link layout. Um, it's the same as what's used on the shore, but it's a, a refinement of that. And we can talk about, you know, some of the work we've done around idler, um, on this layout that, uh, builds off what we learned from the shore. Um, and so really the, the meal project was, you know, over several months, uh, ride testing with a range of different riders and different terrain and trying to see if we could enhance the descending capabilities of the current models while still retaining all the pedaling characteristics and kind of the intuitive handling uh, that we felt both bikes had and people would expect from all mountain or trail bikes. Uh, and I guess at the end of that meal process, we, we sort of answered that question for ourselves, both for the site and the optic and felt that we could kind of have the best of both worlds with this layout where the bikes uh, descended uh, better than the outgoing models, um, but still retained all of that kind of intuitive handling characteristics that, um, that people would expect. Yeah. A lot to dive into there and we'll go more depth on a lot of it in a second here, but I mean, I guess it's, yeah, kind of worth pausing on for a minute. The optics still 125 rear travel trail bike with a 140 travel fork. And then the sights 150 rear 160 front. And especially for the optic, that's not necessarily the category of bike that we're seeing a ton of high pivot, options in it's not the only one but you know they're more prevalent in bigger enduro and downhill bikes certainly so i guess would like to have your thoughts just kind of on what did that mule testing look like that validated the idea of going to a high pivot on especially the optic and the side along with it and what questions were you looking to answer with that testing when you started in on it. Yeah, for sure. The, the optic, I think was the, the bigger question mark in our minds too, was, um, just given how successful that bike was, um, not wanting to, to mess with something too much that you had success with, but, um, and, and then, like you said, you know, a, a high pivot layout on a bike in that travel category is a less, a little less common. Um, but I think really what we're trying to see is uh, we felt geometry wise, the, the current one was um, the geometry really allowed it to kind of punch above its weight or descend, you know, in a way that people wouldn't expect from a 125 bike. And we wanted to kind of lean into that a little bit more and say, you know, what could be done suspension wise to enhance its capability? And does it detract from anything in terms of, you know, how it handles on kind of smoother, flowier type trails that, you know, the optics going to be ridden on. Um, and yeah, I think that, that was really what we wanted to investigate, I guess, in meal testing. And I guess the other thing that we have kind of learned from uh, the development of a few different high pivot platforms now is that not all high pivot platforms are, you know, ride the same. Um, we like to kind of think of rearward axle path as a, a spectrum, uh, in the same way that you might treat vertical wheel travel. Um, so you can have something like the range layout, um, or high single pivot layout that provides, you know, an entirely rearward axle path, and that's going to ride in one particular way. And it might be well suited to, you know, straight line, chunky kind of trails and momentum conservation and kind of the most demanding terrain. Um, but you can dial that back and still get some of that benefit while, um, having a bike that handles more intuitively and, you know, a way that most people are more accustomed to for kind of trail all mountain use. And, um, I think that's kind of what's the mule testing of the optic in particular really allowed us to, um, clarify in our minds was that we can still have that bike handle in the way that people would expect. Um, but with a little bit more rearward axle path, it takes, um, some of the hits from those square edges and translates them into suspension motion rather than uh, kind of hanging you up. And so ultimately it's a bike that tracks and continues to kind of punch above its weight when trails get more technical, rough, more challenging, 
Um, but at the same time, it's still at home on smoother, flowier, uh, kind of single track that people want to ride that bike on. Yeah. I think that bit about high pivots and rearward axle paths being, or existing on a spectrum rather than just being this monolithic thing where they all ride the same is well put and definitely an important note. And so I guess, you know, having, you talked about some prototypes that you tested mule versions of the bikes but what uh kind of how did you go about building those out and what were you how close were they i guess to where you ended up with the production bikes in terms of kinematics and stuff not necessarily construction obviously those are kind of different variables i suppose but yeah take us through sort of what you were experimenting with with those yeah sure um yeah so the mules in this case uh I think with the the range meal that everyone saw, there was more of a geometry focus on that bike is in addition to suspension testing. Um, with these bikes, because we felt like we were starting from a pretty good base geometry-wise with the current sights and optics, uh, we felt there was less of a need to investigate different geometry uh, adjustments. So the adjustments on the sight and optic mules were more focused on kinematics. Um, so one of the uh, kind of key adjustments that we wanted to investigate was uh, leverage curve alterations predominantly around progression. Uh, there's kind of two things we were trying to address with the sight and the optic um, that we felt we needed to investigate on a mule. The optic, um, we relied pretty heavily on volume spacers in that shock to get progression from the air spring to give it that kind of ride feel. Um, and there's some drawbacks that we found from running a, an air shock that's jammed full of volume spacers. Uh, one of them is you're storing more energy in the spring that needs to be controlled and rebound. And so that kind of impacts what you can do with a rebound tune. Um, and so you end up playing this game of trying to control that energy that's stored in the spring with a rebound tune, but you can't then get the same tracking that you may want. Um, so what we kind of learned from the fluid and that carried forward to the optic is by adding a bit of progression to the leverage curve, uh, we are less dependent on volume spacers in the shock to get that progression. And as a result, it gives us more flexibility with damper tunes and rebound tune in particular. Um, so that was one thing that we, we were investigating on the optic mule on the site side of things, um, that the outgoing model in addition to probably benefiting from a bit more progression, um, it also ran quite a high leverage. So it was a 185 by 52 and a half shock for a 150 bike, which is pretty high leveraged. And um, we found that was challenging, especially for heavier riders, um, particularly around certain air shocks and the pressures they would have to run to set the bikes up properly. Um, so one of the things we wanted to address was uh, lowering leverage and then increasing progression. Um, and that would make the bike... Um, a little bit easier to set up for heavier riders. So in both cases, the site and the optic, the new models run larger shocks than the outgoing models. So optic gets bumped up to a 185 by 50 from a 45 millimeter stroke on the past model. And the site gets bumped up from 52 and a half on the outgoing model to 60. Uh, so it's a 205 by 60 on the new shock or on the new bike. Um, yeah, so those were, uh, the leverage curve adjustments that we had built into the mule. Um, and we had uh, these chips at the upper and lower shock mount. So this is something that um, we kind of found when we were laying out the kinematics for these bikes and how to adjust progression, that if we did it in this kind of unique way where we shifted the shock uh, up or down in the frame along its axis, um, we were able to tune the slope of the curve while maintaining the same starting leverage. Um, what we'd found in the past is with other types of chip adjustments where you adjust at one eyelet and you're adjusting kind of the angle of the shock in the frame, um, you end up increasing progression, but typically you increase leverage as well. And so you're always playing this game of trying to pair a compression tune with that higher leverage, more progressive setting to really understand how it's going to ride. So by being able to maintain the same starting leverage and change the slope, um, we were able to maintain the same shock tune more or less the same shock settings and we could get a better understanding of what that progression did for the bike in isolation. Uh, so, so that, that was kind of, um, that kinematic adjustment that was built into the bike. The, the other key one that was built in was, uh, 
a way to adjust idler location to fine tune anti-squat characteristics and understand, you know, how we can make these bikes pedal uh, to a level that people would expect from kind of a trailer all mountain bike. Um, so we had a few different options. We could mount the idler uh, concentric with the main pivot as it is on the shore. Um, we could also mount the idler uh, to a fixed location on the front triangle. And then we also have these options where with bolt-on plates on the chainstay to mount the idler offset from the main pivot, but on the chainstay. Uh, and that is ultimately where we landed. Um, we did a bunch of testing with data acquisition, looking at how the suspension oscillates just from um, pedaling induced motion. Uh, we did a bunch of testing to try and understand efficiency and how different anti-squat setups translate into like a measurable dis difference in efficiency. Um, and ultimately, I think we got a better understanding of, you know, you can measure efficiency, but really what the customer is, it's their perception of efficiency that matters most. Um, so getting a setup that has a good balance of, you know, the customer is going to perceive it as an efficient pedaling bike. Um, but then, you know, when they take it into some more techie climbs, it's still got uh, ample traction to, to kind of make it up that type of stuff. And then on the descents too, that there's not too much of a compromise in terms of the feedback that they get through the feet and, um, being able to move the idler around on these mules was a really unique kind of tuning feature that allowed us to understand that compromise uh, a lot better. I'm curious just about that little note on kind of perceived efficiency, as you put it in the testing that you've done, have you found that there's a difference between what people perceive as being efficient pedaling versus what's truly efficient or do those actually correlate relatively well? I think the biggest, the biggest thing for me was that it was, it's actually really hard to measure, um, efficiency. So we, we started off with a power meter, um, and then trying to maintain a consistent power, uh, up a smooth road climb with different, um, anti-squat setups, so different idler setups. Um, and then kind of realized, well, if you're putting the same power down, you're putting down the same power to the wheel, really, you shouldn't see it. We were trying to see whether there's a difference in time between, uh, two sections. Um, and you know, didn't really find that. And then we realized, well, actually, is it more the amount of energy that the rider has to exert to generate that power? Is that actually where your efficiency uh, changes are coming from? So then we tried looking at things. Right. And then, and that's very hard to measure. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we did try uh, running a heart rate monitor and looking at that. Heart rate's a tricky one because, you know, on that on the days we were running that testing, like you do it at different times in the day, the temperature is different, rider fatigue's different. Like it, it was just difficult to, to quantify. And that's kind of why we brought it back to, well, ultimately a customer is not doing this type of testing. It's their perception of how a bike pedals. That's really what matters most. Um, and so, yeah, it, you know, in a lot of cases you like to have the quantitative and the qualitative data and kind of compare the two. But in this case, you know, I think it was kind of the qualitative after understanding the problem a bit better that, um, that kind of guided us to, to where we wanted to locate the idlers on each bike. Um, going with this idler design, um, meant that we, uh, fell under an existing patent. So there's a patent from a company called iTrack around idlers that are mounted to links that are movable relative to what they call the axle carrier member. So in our case, the axle is mounted to the seat stay. The idler is mounted to the chain stay. So those are two separate links. Uh, so we fell under this patent. So that was one of the other things um, in mule testing. We wanted to understand whether this was a significant enough performance advantage that this patent was something that we wanted to explore licensing. And ultimately, um, we we felt that it was. Uh, and so we've we've licensed this patent for MyTrack to be able to locate these idlers in this way. Um, it really just pertains to the ability to offset the idler from the main pivot. Um, and you know, the rest of the kinematic is all Norco's own design, but, um, just worth mentioning. Cause I, I've seen that patent kind of come up a few times. Right. And being able to by moving the idler around tune anti-squat independently of the other stuff effectively. Um, yeah. So and I guess another thing that we touched on a little bit there that I love to go into in some more detail is some of the shock tuning stuff that you talked about because one of the things that well you mentioned moving to a more 
progressive leverage curve on both bikes to make shock setup easier in some ways and especially on the rebound side but then you're specking um large volume air shocks on even the optic including putting a vivid on at least some of the builds um and i guess i'm curious to hear kind of how you're thinking about setting up kinematics for a given bike um and how the ultimate intended shock spec plays into how you approach that stuff or which one kind of follows from the other and uh, how you just go about work kind of working on both the kinematics of a bike and the shock tune and spec and sort of converging on a final result with all of that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So I think, uh, over, you know, the last few years, I think we've really kind of developed our technical relationship with our, uh, OE suspension partners. So, um, our process incorporates shock data, whether it's air spring data or, you know, uh, damper tunes of force velocity plots, um, quite early on. Uh, so even at the kind of kinematic definition stage, um, certainly with the air springs, um, we can bring air spring data into the software that we use and look at wheel force as a combination of, you know, the leverage curve and the air spring curve. Um, and I think with these bikes, we, I guess, um, we had experience with a lot of the shocks that we were looking at specking from previous models, whether it was the range with a DHX2, um, or some of our past sites and optics with some of the other shock options. Um, so we have good knowledge of kind of what tunes work well, what air spring characteristics we were running on, you know, other air shocks. Um, and I think we, we brought that in before we'd even define the kinematics for the mule so that we could consider the leverage kind of adjustments that we wanted on the bike to kind of, you know, cover the, the range that we thought we would want for a coil and a high volume air shock. Um, but I think what we've seen on the airshock side of things recently is the airspring curves are getting closer and closer to what you may get from a coil, certainly on, you know, high volume, like vivid or float X2. Um, and so because of that, we kind of felt like we didn't really need a significantly different leverage curve or progression from the leverage curve, uh, to be able to tune around both a coil and a high volume airshock that we were looking at specking, which was, um, kind of nice. We, we validated that at the mule phase by running kind of both options, working through tunes. We actually had a lot of the base tune work or the groundwork for that was really done at the mule phase so that when we got our first kind of ride samples of the carbon and aluminum production bikes, we, you know, it was really the fine tuning, uh, work that was done, but we were starting with, uh, you know, tune information that we we'd already ridden on the mules. Um, and yeah, so I think that's kind of what we found. And then I guess the, the final piece to that, that, um, you know, we've always placed a lot of emphasis on is, um, providing customers with detailed setup information that, uh, that's kind of the final thing that, you know, really means that that customer is going to ride the bike in the way that we, uh, have designed it to ride. Um, and so with this kind of new ride line that we're bringing out alongside these bikes, um, we're providing everyone with. Uh, detailed setup information that's tailored around their their height, their weight, their ride preferences, the trails they ride, um, and that really uh, takes it to that final step that gives them a you know a complete um, setup for for whatever bike they purchased. Yeah, that's worth touching on a little bit too, um, and probably easier to follow along if folks just pull the site up and take a look themselves. I'll we'll throw a link in the show notes with to that to. So go, so go find it and play around a little bit, I guess is what I'm saying, but, um, pretty cool looking tool, uh, that, as you said, does a notably deep dive on bike setup, both suspension and some cockpit stuff a little bit too. Um, and tell us a bit about what you've done with that and kind of how you go about actually coming up with those sorts of setup recommendations and tailoring it in a way that is more digestible to people. So you don't have to think as hard and be as keyed in to kind of 
dial all that stuff in. Tell us about it. Yeah, sure. So it came from, I guess uh, this is prior to me starting at Norco, but I think we had experience with, you know, we'd send a bike off for review, um, you know, feel like we were very happy with it. And then the reviews would be kind of mixed and I'd kind of go, okay, but you know, what are they experiencing that we didn't catch? And a lot of it came down to, to set up. Um, and so we kind of feel, felt like we need a way to control, uh, not only media experience, but, you know, customers experience to make sure they're riding the bikes in the way that we intended, uh, by providing them with detailed setup information. Um, and so that's where, uh, the first version of Ride Aligned came about, and that was to support the Model Year 20 uh, sites and optics. And that was about the time that I joined Norco and was kind of, you know, impressed with the amount of detail that we were providing with customers, but then also thinking about how do we sustain that level of detail as, you know, the volume of bikes that we're trying to support uh, with Ride Aligned grows. So that's kind of what this new one is focused on is, um, maintain the same level of quality in the setup information that we provide, um, but making sure that we can support a growing range of models and specs. Um, and so it's also building off of um, some of the learning that we've done around rider weight distribution and understanding how that impacts setup uh, and to make kind of the behind the scenes part of this more um, calculation based and less um, qualitative rider feedback based. Um, so which I, I think ultimately translates into better setups. Um, and then also we can be more efficient in how we generate that setup information. So, um, normally our process kind of looks like, uh, we'll go out and do some baseline testing with a few of our different ride testers. So different skill levels, um, different heights and weights on different frame sizes, um, look at the settings that they're running and we find typically we you know, we can kind of translate from one person's baseline to another once we understand what their weight distribution is on the bike. Uh, so we we developed a, a scale rig, which is, you know, just a, we were able to position a bike and a rider on two scales under the front and rear wheels and then measure their weight distribution. And that gives us some insight into the settings that they may need to run. And um, so that plays into the calculations that run kind of behind the scenes in the ride line setup guide. Um, and then the final component, I guess, that um, we're bringing into this new ride line that we had in the past is uh, we have a shock dyno that's now capable of running shocks and uh, fork dampers uh, through shaft speeds that are more reflective of what you would see on trail. And that allows us to kind of characterize compression and rebounds. Um, we use it quite heavily on the rebound side of things when we're recommending uh, different rebound settings to different rider weights um, to make sure that we have the same kind of proportion of rebound damping um, from our baseline rider to riders at kind of the fringes at the, the light and heavy end. Um, and then I guess uh, that's how the, we generate sort of the baseline setup information in ride line. And then we've got all these adjustments that the rider can do to tweak their setup for different terrain types, different preferences. Um, by either firming or softening the bike, adjusting the front to rear balance, or some uh, changes to the damping to suit different terrain types or different levels of trail grip. So uh, it really is just trying to build off what the old one did really well, but um, be you know more accurate across a wider uh, rider weight range and give more options to really tailor your setup to the trails that you're riding. Yeah, I think some of what you just touched on is worth really highlighting the fact that it's far more involved than just kind of a height and weight based inputs that you sort of, you got those of course, but then um, there's kind of sliders to adjust your sort of general preference for softer or firmer suspension and kind of trading off grip for support kind of things. And then you get those inputs to kind of the baseline settings, but then after you've spent a little bit of time on the bike and seen how those settings are treating you, then you've got some secondary adjustments for kind of front to rear bias. If you feel like the front soft relative to the rear, vice versa or whatever, you have sort of subsequent steps based on what you've learned from trying the original settings to 
to dial things in and get updated recommendations. And then the ability to save those settings if you create yourself a little login and just have a bank of settings if you want to, you know, for example, have your firmer bike park set up versus the everyday trail ride one or whatever it may be. So slick looking tool. I'm excited to um, give it a go. Uh, both bikes are actually out for delivery as of right now as we're recording this. So I'll be getting on them soon, but haven't yet. Uh, keen to see how the, um, how close those setups get. As I recall, the prior version for the range when I reviewed that got me really close on the rear shock setup, but had the fork kind of proportionally soft and I needed to firm that up a bunch. So, um, New one looks cool. Uh, we'll see see where we wind up, but yeah, the, and I think your um, your experience with it is um, we we had similar experience. So uh, I think that was one of the reasons for broadening the range of the adjustments is to to give people the option. You know, if the initial settings don't work for them, to not kind of leave them guessing at what they should do, but to kind of guide them through how they can adjust their setup to to suit you know whether it's a preference thing or a trail type thing um, to get them in a good spot. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's gives the rider, you know, as much detail as they want to get into, if they just want to set up and they want to go out and ride, you can definitely do that too. But if you really want to get into it, um, you've got all the, the dials to, to turn to guide you through it. Well, and then just to bring it back to the bikes a little bit, another pretty interesting detail of both is that they are both configured to run either full 29 or, or mixed wheel size on the same frame, but rather than just doing a flip ship or reconfigurable lower shock mount to accommodate that you're swapping both the lower shock mount and the rocker link to tweak everything in conjunction. So I guess tell us why and what you are changing beyond just moving the axle around to accommodate the different wheel size. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we looked at, I guess up until these bikes, we didn't have a ton of experience testing mixed wheel bikes. I mean, I think some of us had done it in, you know, some sort of, yeah, you know, like roundabout ways that uh, have a few compromises and stuff just to understand it a bit better. But um, these meals really gave us the opportunity to do it properly where you, you know, the goal was let's understand what each wheel size, um, what the merits of each wheel size are in isolation of other factors. And uh, that's kind of always our approach when it comes to testing is trying to change one thing at a time to truly understand what that one thing does. Um, and the one thing that we kept coming back to is it's relatively easy to correct for geometry changes from going from a, a large wheel to a small rear wheel. Um, what becomes more difficult is correcting for kinematic changes. Um, and the most critical of those, at least we felt was the leverage curve. So, um, converting from 29 to MX with just a chip might conserve your geometry, but your leverage curve, you know, let's say it shifts up significantly and, um, you know, significant toss is, is actually less than you might think when it comes to what shock tune pairs well with that leverage curve. So, um, we felt it was really important that we were able to maintain the same leverage curve between both wheel sizes. And the best way that we found to do that was to be able to move both the upper and lower um, shock mounting points. Uh, and so that's why we went about it by doing a dedicated link arm and lower shock mount plates um, for each wheel size. And so that maintains the same leverage curve. Um, you know, I talked about previously how much time we spent testing the progression of that curve. Um, and the shock tunes that go along with it. So we maintain all those characteristics. Your settings translate over. Um, their majority of the geometry numbers remain the same. Uh, there are a couple changes in back-end geometry. So the uh, fully extended rear center lengths on the mixed wheel size bikes are slightly shorter. Um, but what goes along with that is a little bit more rearward axle path with the mixed wheel setups. Uh, and so when you actually look at the way we looked at the rear centers on these bikes was looking at where they sit at ride height or at sag. Um, and so when you actually look at where the rear axle sits at ride height, 
between the two wheel size setups, they're actually quite similar because the mixed wheel size um, has a slightly more rearward axle path. Uh, so, you know, your actual geometry numbers end up being really close. And we felt through meal testing that that gave us a really good impression of what each wheel size did well, what it didn't do quite as well as the other. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we, when we went to the production bikes, we didn't just, um, zero in on one wheel size per bike, but we wanted the ability to still convert between the two. Um, we've definitely respect certain models with certain wheel sizes just around, you know, the intent of the parts that are on that bike, but, um, the missing link kits that we're calling them, those are all, you can be purchased aftermarket and you can convert your bike between the two wheel sizes, um, with support from ride line for either one. It's been discussed plenty, but still curious for your sort of general take on the wheel size options and what those trade-offs look like. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I've, I've spent a fair bit of time converting back and forth between the two. I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm in the process of building up a site right now. I'm still not sure exactly which wheel size to go with. I got to buy a wheel size or a wheel set for it pretty soon here. So got to make a decision. Um, I, I do like the mixed wheel for like, to me, it's, uh, it takes less lean angle to get the side knobs of the rear tire to hook up. And so to me, that's what really allows you to kind of like square off corners and get the back end to come around, uh, more easily. So I, I like that characteristic. Um, some of it, I think maybe comes down to the trails that you're riding and, uh, which is maybe why I have a, a harder time deciding between the two. The 29, I still feel like the, the way it can kind of just run through rough is, um, is really nice. Um, I've also, because of the height, because of my height and our new, uh, five size model, uh, I kind of have the option to either size up to a size five or size down to a four. And I feel like the size five, I would probably gravitate more towards the mixed wheel setup, um, just to make a slightly longer bike feel a little bit more maneuverable. Um, the size four, I feel like I could run the 29, still feel like the bike corners well, and it's easy to handle, uh, but maybe just has a little bit more run through in the rough. So, um, that, that's kind of what I found through testing. I guess it's a, a nice benefit of being, uh, able to ride some of the mules. You get a pretty good understanding of what you, what you like and what you don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's generally pretty consistent with my experience on bikes that are convertible and can toggle. Um, the note about the chain stay length is interesting because um, it does sort of, like especially on a high pivot bike where you've got a substantially rearward component to the axle path, one of the uh, sort of follow-on effects of that is that having, it depends on how you do it, but most of the ways that you would make the bike convertible between wheel size make the chain stay shorter for the smaller wheel as is the case here at least static though like you said the fact that it balances out more as you get closer to sag makes some sense but um i guess how much did you feel like you needed to sort of or maybe a better way to put it would be how did you approach designing the geometry for the bikes with the fact that they're high pivots and have the uh, wheel size adjustability in mind as compared to kind of if you're doing like compared to the prior generation bikes, because they're the geometry is largely similar between them for the most part with some changes, certainly. But I guess how much do, do the high pivot and wheel size adjustability factors play into where you wound up with the geometry on the bikes? Um, yeah, so maybe starting with the, the high pivot, uh, part of it, I think I kind of mentioned, um, we felt like we were in a pretty good place in terms of front to rear proportions with the current bikes. Um, so given that there is a bit more rearward axle path with the new bikes, we felt the best way to kind of retain that same front to rear proportion and same weight distribution, um, was to look at where the outgoing bikes sat at ride height in terms of front center and rear center, um, and where the new ones would sit with, you know, factoring in that rearward axle path. So that's, um, that's how we uh, adjusted or approached the geometry 
for these bikes. Um, besides that, um, the geometry numbers are very similar. We have moved to five sizes. So, um, the reach numbers change a little bit because we've, um, tried to capture a similar, uh, rider height range, although we, we go a little bit taller now in the size five, um, but with smaller reach jumps in between sizes. Uh, so you'll see the nominal reach numbers on our bikes are a bit different from our past four size model. Um, but those are all just scaled. So now the, you know, the standing height for a size four is a little bit different from what a, a large was previously. Um, as far as uh, approaching geometry for wheel size conversion, um, yeah, you're right. There is uh, one one thing that's um, fairly difficult to totally design out, although I'm not sure you'd want to, uh, is the fact that um, you're, in our case, we have a virtual pivot layout. So the rear axle rotates about a virtual instant center. And when you go to the smaller wheel size with the same main pivot location and same link arm pivot location, your instant center sits a little bit higher relative to the rear axle, which is what means uh, you have a slightly more rearward axle path. Uh, it also is what means the you know, static or fully extended rear center length is slightly shorter. Um, and that was, that was one thing that we actually felt like, you know, those two things maybe balance each other out a little bit. Um, so when we approached the geometry of the back end, we, um, we felt that we needed to be ride tested, but there was premise to, you know, it's a slightly shorter rear center with 27.5 rear wheel. Um, but with more rearward axle path, what you're actually feeling at ride height, which is, you know, where the bike sits when it's got a rider on it, it may actually translate into pretty similar ride characteristics. And Probably the biggest indicator of that is we've been able to carry over um, our fork and shock settings between the two configurations without making any real changes. And to us, that's you know a key indication that the weight distribution is similar um, between the two bikes. So and and then also just down to how they ride. Um, you know, outside of feeling kind of the benefits of the two wheel sizes, it doesn't feel like your weight is positioned drastically you know differently between the two wheel size setups. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I guess kind of what I was getting at is like, I've been on some other bikes that are convertible like that and felt like you do get a pretty notable change in weight distribution, depending on how the conversion's done and what the setup looks like. So yeah, that's the thought I was getting at with that. Yeah. I think the, the key one that helps with that is being able to maintain the same leverage curve between the two. Um, so then you can maintain the same shock settings to achieve the same sag at the shock or same ride height. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, I don't know anything else that we kind of haven't really touched on that you feel like we should hit here. We're, we're specking. Um, we've done some testing with Sprindex, uh, coils on the coil spec bikes. We started that with, uh, the mule bikes and kind of having riders, uh, in our development team of different weights and wanting to make sure that, our feedback was reflective of, you know, running the right spring rate. And if, if you're running an air shock, it's kind of a no brainer. You just use a digital pump and adjust your pressure in small increments. And, but with coils, it's a bit more challenging. So, um, we, we tested these adjustable rate springs from Sprindex, uh, in the mule phase and felt like this is a tool that a customer would benefit from. And definitely, you know, as we're pushing into more detailed ride line setup guides, inspecting coils. Um, we don't really want people to be limited to 25 or 50 pound jumps in spring. Um, cause there's a lot of people that would fall in between the gaps. Um, so the, any bike that's specced with a coil, uh, is going to come with a, a Norco Sprindex co-branded adjustable rate spring. Um, and that will allow them to fine tune their spring rate in smaller increments than you would otherwise get from a fixed rate uh, steel spring from Fox or rock shocks. Um, so that's a, yeah, just another unique feature. I, I don't know if there's other brands doing that, but, um, yeah, it, we felt it was important to, to make sure that we could set up bikes properly for people. Yeah, that's certainly a nice touch. One of the, one of the other things that maybe is, uh, I've certainly been involved in the, the testing of it, but, um, you know, it, hasn't been me necessarily leading the, the drivetrain testing of this, but one of the other things that was really important to us was the drivetrain feel from the bikes and wanting them to pedal as a, you know, a bike with a conventional drivetrain without an idler does. 
Um, and then at the same time, also learning from the range and the shore on what could be done to improve idler durability. Uh, so we went through a project where we um, worked with a third party to run idlers on a durability test rig. Um, and ultimately that helped us to kind of arrive at a new idler design. So it's a stainless steel idler um, with a DLC, so a diamond-like carbon coating. Um, and in our testing, that's increased the durability of that idler by seven times compared to our previous aluminum idlers. Um, and what that means is that now your idler should wear at the same rate as cassette and chainring. So when it comes time to replace one, you just replace all of them as you normally would. Um, and, and then the other thing that we've, uh, played with is kind of tooth profile and, and narrow versus narrow wide, um, and trying to get drivetrain feel that was in line with our expectations and in line with, you know, what you would get from a conventional drivetrain. And I think we've, we've come really, really close. Um, and then the, the last part of that is how do you retain the chain? Um, and there's been a ton of work done by others in the development team, um, on idler, and chain retention and idler guide design. Um, and we've, you know, we've learned a whole bunch through that process that um, has led to the design of these idler guides um, in combination with a more durable idler that uh, should mean that chain retention on the idler is, uh, is not a concern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That stuff about just drivetrain feel and trying to minimize drag from the idler and so on. is I think a good note too, because especially, you know, given that we're talking about, shorter travel bikes compared to a lot of the other high pivot stuff out there, you know, that becomes an increasingly relevant concern. And I mean, how much do you think the fact that you guys also have the fluid in your lineup to be the, I don't know, call it more conventional trail bike alongside the new optic and sight kind of made it easier to take this leap and go high pivot on them or, was that not a major consideration and you just kind of felt like, well, this is the right decision for these bikes. So we're, we're pulling the cord here and going for it. No, I think, I think on the optics side of things, it, it definitely um, freed us up to be a bit more experimental with the optic, uh, especially when we made the decision to offer a carbon front triangle for the fluid. Um, so that, that bike, you know, uh, with the carbon front triangle really did sort of slot into where the current optic sits to serve that portion of the market. Um, and I think that was one of the things that felt made us feel more comfortable about being a bit more experimental with the optic. Um, I think what we found though is, you know, we haven't, it's not as if we've lost, um, what the op, the current optic does really well. I know there's going to be people that look at the fact that it's gone high pivot and feel like something's been lost, but when you get on it, um, I think you're going to still have uh, all the characteristics that you really like from the outgoing model. Um, but when you really start to push your limits and push the edge of what that bike's capable of, um, you're going to find it's, it's there to, there to support you a little bit more and you, things don't get quite as rowdy as quickly. Um, and then I guess in going a little bit more premium with the optic now with a full carbon back end too, we were able to shed some weight. So the, you know, you can build up an optic to be, you know, sub 30 pounds, if that's, you know, how you'd prefer. Um, and you can also build it up to be, you know, a coil, uh, larger shock up front or sorry, larger fork, um, and be that kind of like short travel, smashy downhillers trail bike. So it's actually, you know, quite a versatile bike within that travel category. Um, but I think for sure, like you said, having the fluid, uh, slotting in as your traditional kind of horse link layout for that trail bike market helped us be a bit more experimental there. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I guess to continue that thought, how would you guide someone who's sort of unsure if the optic or the fluid makes more sense for their use case? How do you see those two differentiating each other? Yeah. Uh, I think, I think the, so the optic definitely, you know, with the carbon back end, it, it is a more premium sort of, um, price point, I guess for us. Uh, so yeah, there may be not totally comparable there, but in terms of terrain, I would say, you know, the optics going to be at home on 
much of the terrain that you would enjoy riding a fluid on. Um, but if you do occasionally like to kind of push the limits of what that short travel trail bike is capable of, but you don't necessarily want to, or have the budget for, you know, whatever you don't, you know, can't justify owning a longer travel bike. Um, I think the optics, there's more room at the, you know, at the more, uh, aggressive end of the spectrum for that bike to, um, to, yeah, be, you know, the right tool for the job. Um, I look at it for, you know, I, I moved to BC from Ontario, so Eastern Canada and don't really have the same elevation. Um, but definitely, you know, there'd be times where you take it to the bike park or something like that. And you kind of want to have one bike you can ride on your local trails, um, just rip around single track and stuff like that. But at the same time, you know, take it somewhere a bit more rowdy and, and still feel like it's, it's got your back. So, um, I feel like that's, that's kind of the optic buyer compared to the fluid. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, I think it's been a good rundown on the new bikes. And like I said, uh, currently have both allegedly out for delivery as of when we're recording this. So I'll be getting on both soon and we'll have a lot more to say about them coming right up here, but appreciate you taking the time and looking forward to getting out on them. Cool. Yeah. Thanks David. We're super interested to hear your feedback. I'll keep you posted. Yeah. Watch to come on that soon. Cool. Thanks. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in your podcast player of choice to help keep the show going and growing. I'd also like to say thanks to Colin for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.